So how do you persuade customers to give up their free product and pay you instead? And you know, what would you say as an investor if a startup came to you with such a proposal? Yeah, I, you better have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's Theron McCullough of Fifi this week on the Lean Startup Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Hi, and welcome back to the Lean Startup Podcast. I'm Chris Guest. I'm the CMO here at Topology Eyewear in San Francisco and an advisor to the Lean Startup Company. And today's discussion has something of an air of Return of the Jedi to it. And not just because our guest is returning to this podcast for his second appearance, but he's someone whose personal journey has taken him from being Luke Skywalker to Obi-Wan Kenobi and back to Luke Skywalker again. Or more specifically, he has been an entrepreneur with experience from Accelerator through to successful exit. He's also been an intrapreneur at companies like Pivotal and Pivotal Labs. He's been an investor and an advisor to others at Silicon Valley Bank and Accelerprise. And now he's back to an entrepreneur again with his own startup, Fifi. So I'm really excited to see what unique insights he's gained along the way and see what we can learn from today's guests, Theron McCullough. Theron, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, for Chris, for having me. So given your background as uh, an entrepreneur before you discovered this process, what was it that appealed to you personally about it, about the Lean Startup, I mean? Yeah, I think um, I'm, a, I'm an interesting combination of a, uh, an optimist and a, a realist. If, uh, if you're a founder and you're an optimist, you're, you're going to be let down. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you're a realist, then you, you kind of, you, um, you roll with the punches a bit better. So I, I think that was a big thing for me was looking at your failures and pulling whatever you can pull out of your failure as what did we learn instead of we failed here and now I'm frustrated and I have to start from scratch. It's like, well, we learned something out of this failure. What did we learn? And then how do we make that learning um, part of our next iteration to learn more and then next go around? Mm, so it sounds like considering failure as part of the process rather than failure as a failure of the process, perhaps. Yeah, I would say a hundred percent. In addition to when you're managing teams, that approach is a lot more positive and you're going to get a lot more um, return in that energy um, out of your team by saying, look, we, it's not a total failure. Here's what we learned. Um, now let's go back to the drawing board and, and take our learnings and iterate on that. And you did a good job because now we know what that failure was. So we will know not to do that again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because it's very difficult, uh, particularly I think when more junior folks j join a team or come from an environment where failure isn't tolerated or, or feel a lot of fear of, of let, failing and letting the team down. It, it can certainly help if that tolerance and an understanding of the value of early failure is sort of communicated from the top or from the team leader to then embed that philosophy within the culture of the team. Yeah, I would agree. And, and something that I think about a lot is how, um, how the enterprise looks at failure versus how startups look at, at failure. Mm -hmm. And 
and almost finding a mechanism to create a buffer um, between those those two because your your failure in the corporate environment can be looked upon uh, pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you bring a a person from the uh, startup ecosystem or the early stage or let's say the lean, um, that is not a you're excited to hit that failure because now you've learned something great hopefully and you can move on to the next um where if you even have the utterance of the word failure then you you get into to hot water and, and you have to be a little bit worried um so changing that and that that mind thought and that process i think is um is something that we all should be you know empowered to do um in the enterprise as well. and do you see that change starting to to happen in the enterprise sort of adopting that that approach and that that mindset or do you think it's still a very long way to go or maybe it won't ever really get there to the extent that it that it exists in the startup world i think there's a pretty long road um mm. <laughs> the uh the reality is there's a lot of whether someone wants to take the time to understand this and i i also think unfortunately a, a lot of companies will say they, hey, we're lean, you know, or we're agile, or we have the lean startup and we do that. And it's almost like putting that on your resume. So someone will hire you, but you're like, are you really doing it? And have you really adopted this? And do you really encourage people to go out and fail to, to make learnings? Or are you just saying that to then have one of those those keywords out there. So people will say, Oh, you're a great company because you are like this. Um, so I think, you know, that's just, just my opinion. Um, and again, with people came to us, especially at a pivotal, not knowing or unknowing of this process, but having enough curiosity and knowing they wanted to do better and for their company, they would do anything they could to do it better. Um, so there's a lot of training that went along with that. But it was, uh, it was mostly being open to this idea of, hey, maybe there is a better way to do it. And did you, um, was there anything in particular that you learned that helps achieve that outcome in creating that significant shift in tolerance to failure within a large enterprise? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was was just the workshop aspect of it, of doing, and it's really firsthand. I found that no matter how much you read about, especially it seems to me, lean startup, until you actually do it, you don't understand what those struggles are. And you will have a multitude of aha moments if you just do it yourself. And even if it's on a fake project that you're never going to do anything with, um, once you get out there and actually do it, you realize you realize how much information every single um, customer or potential customer can give you to to save you from wasting time and wasting energy and also at the same time that's customer development this if you adopt those things and you reach back out and say thank you for that feedback we've actually built that into our next um, release they're going to be your customer for life they're going to you know they're going to pay your your SaaS model for forever because they're like, look, you listen to me and you produce something that I really cared about. And now it's better for not just me, but everybody else in the community too. Yeah. Makes total sense. So from there, then you moved over to um, the investing and advising side with uh, Silicon Valley bank and Accelerprise. for anyone that doesn't know those names. Could you tell us a little bit about those two companies? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, after Pivotal, I was with uh, Accelerprise. 
and they're a uh, B2B SaaS accelerator. So we, uh, we come in pretty early into companies. We, uh, there's, as far as a fund goes, there's a, a pretty strong thesis um, outline when we would get involved. And then you go through a three month accelerator and we give you some cash. And what basically, was that thesis? Um, well, the thesis is basically what generalizing, we try to give you $50,000 um, for 5% of your company. We give you three months of, um, of in-house training. So we have world, I don't, I don't know. We have a lot of really high quality mentors um, that are spend a lot of time with you and work with you in that three months. And then the biggest thing that we found is making those connections between those enterprise startups and the actual enterprise that need those services and really helping you enter into the enterprise process. So your, your mentors might be um, TNC with uh, Zora or something like that, where like he's done a phenomenal job, built one of the biggest um, SaaS companies um, and, and really well known for this. And, and he would come and talk to our, our teams, you know, and, and tell them uh, about this process and how he got it up the ground, off the ground and all that. And, and that's really fundamental, um, fundamentally helpful for a startup um, to see. So that was uh, a lot of what we did with Accelerprise. Mm-hmm. And Silicon Valley Bank? So with the, with the bank, I was the managing director of our early stage practice for the West Coast. And a, a lot of the practice there was really um, connecting people and connecting people with um, primarily people that could help, uh, help them uh, in their fundraising, um, as well as uh, potential customers, um, just kind of that ecosystem. So a lot of what we did there was a lot of uh, events, networking events, and, and ways that you could either meet other co-founders, you could meet potential customers, you could meet potential investors, um, and really trying to be at the heart of that ecosystem and help make those connections um, way beyond just being a financial institution. Mm. Um, we, uh, we felt pretty strongly that anybody, you know, a bank is a bank. Anybody can take your money and, and hold it for you. But what are you bringing to the table? What's that value add that mm. you really bring outside of that? Um, and it seems and, like that power of the connection and the network is the a common theme across both of those. Yeah, I would say that. And, I, and to expand on that a bit, it's kind of a common theme in, in how I like to involve myself with, with things too. There's a lot of uh, power in community um, and, mm-hmm. and how you connect with people. And I think it's extremely important. Yeah. So how many uh, entrepreneurs or startups would you say that you've worked with and advised over that period of both of those companies? Um, oh, quite a few. We, uh, Accelerprise now has crested over a hundred um, investments in portfolio companies. And with uh, SVB, I was managing about 61% of the global startup ecosystem. So there's a, a lot of flow um, on a lot of companies that we were helping um, across primarily the West Coast, but you'll also find that the majority of early stage companies are in the, the Bay Area or in kind of LA and around um, the West Coast. So you've met quite a few startups and had a look under the hood. Yeah, that in addition to um, had a lot of those conversations with investors. Right, um, right. And what they're looking for, the questions that they ask and, and how um, we would, uh, a lot of the activities is, 
hey, what does the, uh, the investor think about this pitch? How do we help them um, present the best in front of the investor? And what are they looking for? What do they care about? Awesome. And I know that investment firms love to hire entrepreneurs and many VC companies have the, uh, the entrepreneur in residence role, which pretty much sounds like the, the best job you could ever have. And uh, I, I can imagine that that's because they perceive a value in having advice provided by someone that's been an entrepreneur themselves. And, and I wonder, like, is that something that you experience and you, you agree with that value? And can you think of you know, any perspectives that you are able to bring to that advising role um, that were a, a result of your own personal experience as an entrepreneur and intrapreneur? Yeah, I would think so. I, I think um, the role of the EIR is pretty important. Um, especially in these uh, legacy companies, especially at a place like SPB, we have a program um, that brings in these um, these people to really bring that perspective. And and I think it's important to you can also screw it up. I would say mm. you're uh, and many times you can squash that same energy that you tried to hire into your company. You know, letting I think giving a long leash of hey, what are the you've been self-directed so far and now you're working for an org that um, potentially not everybody is so self-directed. So giving that ability to um, go discover, go find out what those things are that, that would be helpful to your customers, um, whether it's in a, a fund, a VC firm, or it's in a institution, just saying, you know, uh, go figure out what those problems are within the constructs of this company. Mm-hmm. with the startups and be kind of that voice um, for them. So, and it can be in several different um, augmented in several different ways um, depending on the company. But I think that perspective is, is pretty critical um, where it could get, I guess, squashed or screwed up is, is if you don't set some of those guidelines to what, what success is, you know, mm-hmm. what am I trying to achieve and what am I trying to accomplish? Um, some of those KPIs and the KPIs might not be what an enterprise would expect them to be, but it could be just just filling seats at an event or hosting dinners and getting that good mix of, of the venture community with the startup community and making sure there's an agenda set and see um, how much that actually increases the value that you bring to the table. Mm. So is there perhaps a bit of a culture clash when the entrepreneur becomes in residence? You know, I've heard it said before that some of the virtues that make an entrepreneur a great entrepreneur make them a terrible employee. <laughs> yeah. So is that something that, that happens and causes a bit of a rift sometimes when you kind of go in-house, as it were? Yeah, it can. It definitely can. Uh, and I, I think there's a, there is a learning curve. It's back to, I guess, um, the lean startup. That's also an experiment. Is when you bring in that your first DIR, um, you're like, how are, how do we see success out of this person when they don't work within our normal constructs um, and they aren't used to bureaucracy and they're used to going to the top ranking of the CEO to have that conversation when there's um, in this org there's a pecking order and and how you communicate that way and how you actually yeah some frictions can can arise from it um, but I I think opening opening those doors and knowing that trying to create a in an ecosystem where that person is is supported along the way um and they're almost uh, in some senses could almost be autonomous um to the rest of the org as long as 
you're, you set, you know, the, the three or four guidelines of this is what we're trying to accomplish out of this. Um, and I also think it's a good idea to set a time limit mm. as well. Um, and almost, is this working? Yes. You know, if not, then what's the next step? Um, and also, uh, something that I found personally is how the idea of the EIR is, is, a, is, has a limitation to it. And at some point they're either going to get absorbed into the company or they're going to jump off and do another project or they're going to get absorbed into another company. So how do you help that EIR then go off to another company? How do you make a solid reference um, to help them? Or if they want to do that next best thing, like how are you really helping them get to that next best thing? Um, And again, to the, I guess if in the sense it would be customer satisfaction, like how are you helping that? customer as it were be successful after this and they're they're going to be your your champion um and be pretty prolific when they talk about your company if that whole scenario goes down well Mm. so the the investment community tend to then uh highly value the experience and the perspective of the entrepreneur i've always wondered and i'm interested to hear what you think how does the investment community value the lean startup process nowadays? Is it something whereby it's kind of seen of a particularly strong attribute or a mandatory that people want to know that they're, uh, that the startups being incubated or being advised embrace this type of philosophy or is it kind of, um, a controversial topic? Has it gone out of fashion in any way or, or how would you characterize that? Yeah, the, I think the right off the bat, no, they don't care at all. Mm. And what, okay. I, what I mean is a VC's business is, is the money, is a return on their investment. Mm. And they don't, in general, they don't really care how you get that return, but that you do get the return. Now, right. to expand on that a bit, it's, you know, does it save me money? Does it make me money or does it save me time? And if you're, you know, you have to hit one of those three things or all three of those things for a VC to look at this and say, this is a a solution. Now, when you're pitching to, or when you're communicating to a VC, the results are what's important. So yes, we've had 20% month over month growth of users. Well, how you got that was probably through a lean method of going and finding those users, testing against them, getting understanding who those users were and targeting that market better and continue to refine. How you increased your pricing model from you know, X to Y is probably through a lean practice, but the VC only cares about, we've seen 20% growth month over month. And mm-hmm. that's the success, that's the KPI, or we've had user growth or we've had development growth. Um, so where the, the lean startup, comes in is maybe on the engineering side and, and deployment. Oh, we've built, you know, from iteration one. And when we started, we've had very structured and very solid deployments over the last three months. And now we're here and like, okay, well that's tractionable. That's something I can put a pin in. And that's what the VC cares about more so than how you got to, to be. Right. So your advice might be then to other entrepreneurs is to follow the process to get to those outcomes but when it comes to pitching and communicating with your investor just focus on those outcomes and 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 save the story of how you got there yeah i mean i think it's a good story you can paint a good picture on how you got there and that also shows 
um, how good of a manager you are because they're really betting on you as the CEO, right? They're betting on you as the founder. Can I manage, can you manage and grow this team to be a 10 X return for me? Um, How you do it. There's, there's many augmentations on how you can do it Um, for me. And especially with early stage companies, if you can, you can say, well, I, I did it because I've been tracking it for the last three months. And this is the successes we've had at the end of every single month. And it's grown like this. And that goes down to even um, email reports to your investment community and updating them on a monthly basis with kind of the same information. It's very structured. Mm-hmm. You know, would you trust if I was coming to you, um, would it be better to see, you know, different randomized um, bits of information here and there? Or would it be better to see, oh, well, every, you know, the first week of every month, I get this really nice um, formatted email from from a, a company that either wants my money or that I just invested in with, this is the progress we've made, you know, A, B, C, and D. Mm. And then uh, telling that story, if the, you know, if, if it's asked, telling the story of, well, how'd you get to these results? Or why do you think this is success? And you can just say, well, I don't know, but we've, we've closed a thousand more people than we did previous months, every month um, mm. for the last three months. And you're like, wow, you track all that. Yeah, I do. Well, that's really impressive that you keep track of that information. Um, you must be a good manager or you, <laughs> yeah. you must be good at this process and, and to grow a company. Um, and maybe what you're saying then is that use the process, get to that outcome. And if somebody does ask, well, how did you get to this? Or how did you, how do you know this to be true? Uh, a side benefit of following the process is you do have that evidence to share with them, mm-hmm. which just again, adds to your credibility. Yeah, hundred percent. And I use that a lot uh, as well in my own, um, in my own startup right now, every interview I do, um, I record and I, I record it in a, a spreadsheet and I'll, uh, I'll even go as far as anonymizing the names of the people that I spoke with and sending off the answers I got. And I'm like, well, I don't know, but these 40 people gave me these answers and they all crossed over at this point. And so that's why I'm building that. Mm. They're like, oh, well, it's not just you thinking that's the answer you've asked, you know, 40 of your prospective customers and they said, that's what they wanted. And just showing that documentation can be really helpful. Mm. And and is that also a, uh, was there some aspect of the lean startup process that you employed when you were an advisor and when you were helping other entrepreneurs, even if you didn't label it as such, where you were, you're taking some of the philosophies and approaches in the lean startup and using that to, to help uh, another startup discover their business sooner. Yeah, there's actually quite a few use cases. Um, I think number one is is always going back to your customers um, and asking again. I think uh, a lot of those things, and I remember a use case where it was, uh, you know, it's it's always a question of how and why and when do you raise your pricing. But when you raised it, it's more important to understand, did you get drop off? And what was that churn like? And if you did get drop off, who dropped off? And were they a legacy customer that just wanted it for free? Or were they your next round of customers that really want to pay for it? And you could go on doing this without knowing that information. And you could see that as a bad signal. But really, you've just augmented your customer base into a paying customer base. So the ones that would never pay you have now dropped off. And if you look at that wrong, you're like, oh, this was a bad move. But then if you look at the adoption rate, and you're like, well, we have new customers that are paying this now. So let's hone in on that and let's test against that now. Mm. 
I think that happens a lot, especially in, uh, in SaaS companies as well. Yeah. So that sounds like an important thing to know. How, how do you, how do you structure, uh, finding that out and running that experiment? Well, you can do it in several ways. You can gate it. Um, you can do geographically. So you can do AB testing geographically. Um, as one. Customers from a certain, let's say the West coast get one price and customers from the East coast see a different price. Yes. Okay. Um, exactly. Uh, regionally, you can do it like that. Um, you can choose, you know, a couple of things you can do, um, choosing to grandfather in certain com- customers and say, hey, this is your price. Um, here's basically build the messaging a little bit different and say, here's these other bolt-on services. Would you pay for those? You know, and if they pay for those, then you can kind of gauge what's happening. Um, you can gauge, you can also build out that product market fit a little better um, by having different pricing models for different groups. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the ways I'd say you could, you could test against that and find out the solutions. Good stuff. So, you know, I think you mentioned that you're getting, you, you advise getting on for, for hundreds or potentially even more of companies. I mean, it sounds like a perfect job. Why would you ever want to leave that and go back to being an entrepreneur and doing twice <laughs> as much, twice as much work for half as much money as they say? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a, it's difficult, especially when you've, you know, my, my time with SVB was phenomenal. Um, and the ability I had, I had a lot of power to do things cause I had the bank backing me. Um, and I was able to influence a lot of people and help them and just be helpful. And the end of the day, it's, it's like, as a uh, tech star says, it's give first, you know, how am I giving first to just be helpful up front with absolutely nothing in return or expecting anything in return. Um, and I love doing that, you know, um, as an entrepreneur, it's, it was hard for me to see this problem over and over and over and the frustrations that I had. And by default, it was kind of the evenings and weekends. I just started asking my friends. I'm like, do you have this problem too? And are you frustrated by this? And it um, basically for deal flow management and system of record for early stage um, investors. Okay. So the problem is I'm using spreadsheets and gmail and trello and angel list and all these different pieces of software to try to get the same end result and when i try to access or look up or understand that information i have to go to all these different pieces of software and it's a big time suck and there's no one no one to solve this problem for me so i basically after a year of or more um seeing this um, and especially it was very acute at Excelprise because we would have so much deal flow that we had to sift through and we had to choose 10 companies within a certain time span. And right when we finished that, we had to do that all over again and you had to do it two times a year. And you're trying to, from with the investor hat on, you can't just, well, ideally you're not just choosing companies at a whim, but your business is investing in you know, you're investing other people's money to get a return for them. So your, your startup is startups, right? Mm-hmm. So you have just as much pressure as the startup does to be successful. Um, and there's more and more, would you say, micro funds or emerging managers showing up now where there are five, 10, $50 million funds that to pay for a tool or services um, similar to this, like a, um, a pitch book or a um, CB insights or something like that is pretty expensive. Mm. So there was, 
very expensive tools that kind of were a solution, but it was like using Salesforce for my team of two, which right. is Salesforce is a phenomenal tool, but with a team of two people, you just don't need something that robust. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't find um, that solution for me. So I decided to build it myself. Um, mm-hmm. So getting, getting to your question, it just, it nagged at me enough. And I, I was like, there's no solution for this. And it took me over 12 months of, of basically asking people if, you know, what are you using now? And they're like, well, using this, but it's not really a, a good solution for me. Um, so I decided to, to quit all the, the magic money that comes in my, my mailbox every two weeks and uh, just go off on the startup um, road again and, and try to tough it out on my own and, and figure out if I can solve this problem for uh, this big marketplace. Mm, so the idea chose you and uh, kept you up at night and you had to work on it. Yeah, hundred percent. Awesome. So um, uh, it w- could you tell us an example of how using Lean Startup helped you go from this initial idea through to having the confidence to leave that paycheck and, and branch out on your own was there a specific point was there a specific signal that you were looking for before you switched from this being a side hustle to being your main gig uh yeah honestly the the biggest switch was when someone wanted to throw capital at me to do it it's like well i can't keep doing keep working for a company if someone wants to invest in me so um no Tell but us about that scenario specifically um, well, it was the, the nice thing about this product, the same people that are my customers are investors. Mm. So it's, it's really easy for me to get to. So I never, for example, I never, never asked if you would be interested in this type of product. I asked, what are your pain points? And in your day to day, what do you use to solve these, these problems for you? And do you think there's a better solution? Um, and that basically helped me to decide. Um, and so by the time I got, and this is just, I, I think a good practice, by the time you get to the point of asking an investor for money, they should already be on board and ready. So it wouldn't take too many conversations of, of saying, okay, I figured this out. Do you agree with it? Do you mind if I get back to you in, in three weeks um, with some more questions? And then by the time you go through that, um, ideally you're at a point where like, Hey, um, so I'm going to build this now. Would you like to be involved? And by that time, that person should feel so engaged already. Um, and, uh, and I don't, my, my craziest um, story with that is um, raising money through Slack. Oh, really? I just, uh, I basically had that conversation, but built up the relationship enough um, where I just asked through Slack and I got a response and like, yep, I'm in. So Great. So for, for most of us, then we're looking for signals that customers want to invest money in the product. And, you know, would you pay that $20 a month subscription for my early product? Or would you buy a sample? Would you sign up to a Kickstarter or something like that? For you, your customer was also an investor. So, so one pitch could have a couple of outcomes there. One is that they could actually sign up to a beta of your product and the other is they could actually invest into your company. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and it's interesting. I just, I just pitched about 40 investors in front of 40 investors, um, this week. And even though I was too early for their check size, every person in that room was a potential customer. So it was all just customer development. And that's kind of where that, that fail fast 
it's like no one wanted to um i wasn't i'm not raising the five million dollar round you know they didn't cut checks that small but at the same time i could garner and gauge what they are interested in what their pain points are and every single person in that room was actually a potential customer of mine mm. so i could use that as uh, kind of that fail fast and, and that um that iterative process and as i understand it part of getting in one of those major investments at the plus five mil check size is about the relationship you have with the uh with the investor and showing the progress over time so now that you've made that early uh contacts you've built the product they can that's their first data point now when it was an idea and it was an early product as you develop that further forward, when you are ready for that size of investment, they know you, they know the product and they can, you're not starting from a blank uh, canvas at the time that you need that check, presumably. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you want to, ideally you'll align yourself that way. It used to be, you had one chance to meet this VC and, and if you screwed it up, then it was over. Mm. Um, anymore that's changed. And especially um, I would say in the Bay area, where yes, you want to build a relationship, um, you want to do it right, you want to have show that you're a solid person, and in, until you're raising um, pretty much a post Series A or or maybe a into your Series A, um, they are investing in you um, a lot of times more so than your product. Mm-hmm. There, you know, you need to build that rapport and build that trust, and and especially when you're you're not going to hit product market fit right away, maybe. But knowing that you're going to continue striving for product market fit and you're, you're bright enough to look at the signals and to see that there might be this, this little granule of information within your product and that's actually what people are interested in and then doubling down on that. Um, those are the types of signals and things that um, investors are hoping to see mm-hmm. um, out of working with you. So your, your customer or the audience for your product uh, in this case is an audience you know very well because it's other people like you that are doing this role. How did you decide specifically the problem that you should solve for that audience? Was it obvious that there was one particular pain point that was the, the most acute that you should start with or were there a few different ideas that you had of problems you could solve for, for other folks like yourself? There were several different problems I thought I could solve. Um, and I wasn't sure what the, I had an assumption that they were all problems, but I wasn't sure what the biggest problem was, what the biggest win for me would be as well as for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started interviewing. I started reaching out to my friends um, and then asking questions um, to them to see what that, that thing was, what that problem was. And I remember at some point in time, I had about 50-50 between two initial product iterations. And some of the best advice I got was, um, well, you just need to ask more people to, to weigh over that 50% into 51, 52 in one direction or the other um, mm-hmm. until you get there. And so that was uh, for a critical mass of the problem. Which, which problem, if sold, is going to engage the most people? Yeah, yeah, that engage the most people or, or solve the biggest pain point. Gotcha. Um, that first biggest pain point. Which took you to what specifically? That was um, helping investors understand their portfolio better. Okay. What, what does that uh, mean for those of us that are not investors? Well, if you're the, I think the closest relation I can make is if you have any sort of public stock, like a, 
Fidelity or an E-Trade account or something like that, you're able to get all types of rich and, and in-depth um, data and analytics about your investments. So let's turn those, those stocks into your portfolio. And that that's accessible and you can look at that you can look at the history of it you can look at you know projections on where it's going and i that was the biggest thing i didn't find with early stage investing because mm-hmm. there was there's no place i could go i mean yes i can go to PitchBook. again there's a price point issue um, and they show some information but it's actually data points that might not necessarily be about my portfolio and and my portfolio as a whole mm-hmm. so how i'm making some of my investments are enterprise some of them are in hardware some are like this but what is happening in the hardware industry that relates to my portfolio in indiana you know i have no idea but if i could find that information it could be uh, so valuable to me and understanding what's happening in my portfolio gotcha and so um you've got then the customer of other investors you've got a problem of managing their portfolio and, and a product which helps helps them manage that in a way that is priced more accessibly than the uh the legacy competitors like you mentioned pickbook pitchbook cb insights so which of these three things would you say you're most passionate about and which of these would you pivot if you needed to so if you found out at some point during the process that this this wasn't adding up to product market fit or it wasn't as scalable as as you'd like would you for example fix on the customer as other investments and, and pivot to a different problem or product? Or are you so passionate about the problem and the product that you would pivot to a different customer that, that had that problem? My initial reaction is you, you can't be beholden to any, mm-hmm. any one of those aspects. Um, you might be slightly off with your customer. You might be slightly off with your product. Mm-hmm. Um, being continuing to test and iterate against both of those things, I think is going to be the biggest is going to find that product market fit. So I might find what I've actually found um, through this process is it's not only the, when I, when I looked at early stage investors, I was assuming it was angel investors and these micro funds or emerging managers. But then I quickly realized that people wanted to introduce me to hedge funds and to um, family offices. And I realized then that they also have this problem and it's a product set I never thought about before. And it's something that I can now build into and build a service um, for them as well, where I didn't know that they would even exist um, as a customer. And coincidentally, that just expanded my total addressable market by like another hundred billion by being able to do something like that. Well, I was going to say, I mean, one, one question I had is how many um, professional investors are there within, I, I always thought, I thought you were talking about angels and VCs, but you're, you're talking about every category of investment potentially. Yeah, there's a, a big upswing in the early stage investing. Um, and again, those, those family offices, for example, are looking at this previously, the seed or pre-seed wasn't a defined asset class. It was kind of a, yes, we need to make investments in that direction but we don't really care what happens with it um anymore we're seeing all the let's say the twilios the twitters ubers all that and you're like wait a minute these people are now you know their returns are excess of hundreds of millions of dollars this is a viable asset class 
Um, and that's exactly why I decided to jump down this road where not long ago, um, there wasn't enough definition around it to make it um, really definable. But now we've actually established this as an asset class where I think there's a big lack in products and services um, in the same area. And that's, uh, yeah, that's kind of where we're, we're attacking right now. So you mentioned that uh, previously as a, an investor used to solve this problem yourself using an, a, a variety of free software. And it is funny, I saw an investor tweet the other day that asked something like, hey, what duct tape and post-it notes do you use to manage your deal flow or something like that? So I, I can believe that there definitely is a problem there that needs to be solved. But one challenge potentially is that you are suggesting a paid product in replace of a free product. And I know that that's something that investors often give entrepreneurs a hard time about. And many entrepreneurs will say, hey, well, I don't have any competitors and no one else is doing this and that's my advantage. And an investor will often reply, well, you do have indirect competitors. It's called post-it notes and whiteboards and Excel and various other things which cost nothing at all. And so, you know, how would you respond to that? And, and, and if you were in, in your investor seat again, would you perhaps give yourself quite a hard time on this issue? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it boils down to a lot of uh, defensibility and those value add services that go on top of it. So how I'm working my model is uh, based on volume. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're making um, a couple investments a year, I'm happy to give it to you for free. If you start making more and more investments, you're basically going to be needing services like tax management, paralegal services, where, because it's a SaaS model, I can really compete on price. So where you might be paying 6K annually to, uh, to have your K-1s and, and all of your tax um, information not only help to reconcile, but a lot of times it gets pushed right up to the date in filing your taxes and kind of puts you behind the ball a little bit. But if I can automate those services and charge you a drastically reduced price because it's within a SaaS model, then I'm winning um, quite a bit and I'm able to basically save you time um, and save you money and, and essentially make you more money. Mm. And I think those are uh, some of the, the ways I'm looking at this. Great. So in the earliest days and in the first time a customer would encounter you, the product is free, just like any of those other alternatives. So there's very low switching cost or barrier to entry. And once you've demonstrated value, then hopefully it becomes a no brainer that they start paying for it to, to retain that efficiency. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Again, not only demonstrating value, but well, if I switched over, I would actually save money. Yeah, uh, that's a that's a really big win. Um, and for me, again, I'm I'm talking what my environment, I guess, is making quite a few investments around the same time. So if you're making 10, 5, 10, 20 investments, um, that's a lot of management of document management, um, trying to keep everything um, coordinated. Um, also forgetting about, there's all, I mean, there's all kinds of aspects to um, even like capital gains taxes, um, things like that, and, and the timing of your investments and how you're taxed and all that. And if I can automate that and just show you a report and say, hey, here's what it looks like, um, and here's what you should watch out for. I think that is a, a massive value add service to a market that hasn't seen um, a tool like this before. Mm. And is your software uh, an opinionated um, software? What I mean by that is that some software like um, Trello or Excel really 
is, is unopinionated software. It, it gives you freedom in how you choose to use it. Whereas something like, say, Pivotal or Jira for managing a project or for workflow does have an opinion on what the process is. And it gives you tighter control, but you have to learn the process of how the software wants you to work. So, so which of those is, is closer to, to where your product stands? That's uh, an interesting question. And to be totally honest, I haven't figured it all out today. How um, you, what, what does your investor experience tell you that it should be? My investor experience tells me every investor likes to do things a little different. And okay. so I will be open to that and I will create, basically it's the, it's the loose structure. It's, Hey, you did a, you should look at doing B, but how you do B is your own, you know, you're under your own um, discretion. Okay. So there's, I think it's, it's more of a checklist of, Hey, you're missing this document or here's this document that you might've forgotten about um, more so than you must do it like this and then this and then this. Okay. And, and this is an important point, I think, for um, listeners that are in the software space to learn. Uh, I encountered this the hard way once before when an investor told um, my friend and I that were working on a previous startup that either switching costs may be low in terms of cost, but in order to sell your free software, you have to have someone learn your process. And if they reject the process, they reject the software. And so I think that's a key point of, uh, of, of the balance here. So how do you think about, or could you say a little bit more about that, that challenge? Sure. Yeah. And I actually tell my engineering team this, like um, I say things like our ethos is reducing friction, mm. like do it how they would do it. Um, for example, I'm, uh, one of my iterations in the future is a BCC uh, and a document by email. So take the that safe note that you have signed um, electronically and just BCC it to Fifi software. And we will parse out the data and information, just throw it into the spreadsheet for you. Because mm -hmm. what would you do normally? You would use email. So I don't want to stop you from using email. You know, that would be a major, um, major roadblock or create a lot of friction. Um, the, uh, the network effect is also interesting that way where we distribute information via email where you're like, hey, here's um, so-and-so just signed this. Um, you might want to check in and make sure it's, um, it's in, your, uh, in your documents or something like that where we could send that out by email. So I think there's a good, with every product, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve. Um, it's how you handle it and how you do your, your kind of onboarding. I think that makes a big difference. Um, and even to right now with my alpha product, I am allowing an investor to just drag and drop their Excel sheet into the product. And when they drag and drop it, the return instantaneously is their portfolio in a perspective they've never seen it before. And that's what I'm, I'm trying to say, look, you didn't do anything different. You already had the documentation um, there. You just had it in a, a very basic cut and dry spreadsheet. Now here's infographics around that same data. And all you had to do is drag and drop it into the software. Mm. So perhaps the learnings for the rest of us then are that guardrails and checklists and things like that are good, but ultimately you need to lean into the existing behavior of your customer and reduce friction as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Uh, I would say a hundred percent. And those examples can go on and on about, Hey, if you're using Dropbox, I'm not going to force you to use something else. I should just let you have a link that links directly to that Dropbox file. Mm 
you know, then are, you know, you can do it one or two ways. Um, those options are yours. Gotcha. So where are you, what stage are you at now with this product? Are you at product market fit? Are you scaling? Are you pre-revenue, post-revenue or, or what? Yeah, we're just, I'm only about three months into development. So I, I okay. would say I'm at a alpha product stage and I'm doing a gated release um, to certain um, customers. Okay. And how are you finding those customers? How are you acquiring people? Uh, fortunately, this has been my industry for quite okay. a few years. So um, a lot of the network that I have um, existing to me is uh, is there. Um, I've also found a lot of resources within uh, more writing. Um, so I'm doing a lot more, I'm trying to be a thought leader, I guess, through through Medium and other um, LinkedIn, things like that, and, and draw interest that way. Um, mm. Another thing, like I said just the other day, I pitched uh, 40 investors. So so just getting out there and networking with the uh, constituents that I think will be my customers is um, how, I'm, how I'm growing that. Yeah, awesome. So thinking back over this entire journey then from your early days as an entrepreneur uh, into being an entrepreneur, then an advisor, and now an entrepreneur again, what do you think that you've learned or what insights do you have from practicing lean startup for such a long time that you probably didn't appreciate in the early days of just reading the theory and, and understanding it intellectually. I imagine, uh, I will continue to run into more things like this. Mm. Um, the, uh, the most profound thing I found was the, uh, user interviews and conducting good user interviews and screwing them up. Um, really? no, no matter, um, no matter how much, I mean, it's really easy to understand the theory of user interviews, but until you go and draft those emails, until you go and actually connect with those people, um, you don't, you'll learn no matter what, you're going to learn what resonates better, um, the process that works for you. I started to find my own hacks on, on how I um, documented that information. Um, and then also um, people will start to tell you, oh, you should try doing it like this, or you should read this article. Um, here's what you should and shouldn't do. And then um, to this point now, and, and as they say, the best, um, you, you know something the best when you can start teaching it. So I actually have now started to, to draft um, blog posts about, um, I just did one recently about user interviews and kind of what I learned. And, and I wanted to bolt on you know, get to the point as fast as possible. So I just threw my examples of the e emails that worked for me um, right into the post. So I'm like, just use this because it works. You know, now you can take that and do whatever you want to with it, but why waste time? Like the, the whole point is for you to, you get um, good answers um, that are not necessarily the answers that you're looking for, but the, the true um, transparent answers of your um, prospective customer. Cause you want to know if you're screwing up, you want to know if you're not building the right thing um, sooner than later. How were you screwing up interviews? Was it from leading the witness too much uh, or is it from uh, not listening actively or, or what were the mistakes that you were making? Uh, I would say one of the biggest ones was not recording properly. Hmm. I would, you would do the interview and you'd think you had everything. And then right when you hung up the phone, you'd say, oh gosh, I can't remember what that is or what they said exactly. Um, and I had this strong desire to record, um, do an audio recording. So then along with the interviews, I just started asking like, do you mind if I record this audio so I can look, listen back at it later? Um, 
And, you know, usually everybody says, yeah, no problem. Um, and I would reference that. And not only would I reference that, when I onboard my new PM, I would have them listen to a couple of those things so they really understand what that pain point is. And you get a lot more out of the, the tonality of an individual um, as well. Um, that was one of the recording mechanisms I did. And then I also um, started recording more things in, um, in Google Sheets. Um, uh, sorry, Google Forms, where instead of sending out a survey, I would just draft the questions um, that I wanted to ask. And as they were answering them, I would fill in the answers myself. And then I would submit them to myself. So then I could reference the same answers that they told me because um, we all, uh, if, if you know um, much about the, the, the lean startup practice, um, surveys can really steer you in the wrong direction pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so I used a survey tool to better get survey answers by filling it out myself and letting them just run on with um, uh, the same questions I had for everybody and document myself just for my own usage. So you get the qualitative benefit of the, the rich high bandwidth discussion, but then the organized data benefit of a survey format just by your filling in the, in the form and they're not. Yeah, 100%. Gotcha. And when you look back on this entire journey and, and your time with the Lean Startup, is there anything that, any opinions that you have about the Lean Startup that maybe other people that practice Lean Startup may disagree with you on? Um, I think the biggest opinion opinion I have is um, there is no right way to do it. Okay. Um, a lot of times um, someone might say, well, you have to do it this way, but that that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of ways to get um, the goal accomplished and how you do it. Um, is there an example you could give? Um, I don't think there's a, a clear example I could give. Um, just knowing that's the nature of the practice Mm -hmm. um, is that fluidity. Um, right. You have to be adaptable to the environment. Um, you can't force the environment. Yeah. So if you're, uh, if you're not getting the answers you're looking for in this specific way, then, and then get creative and figure out a different way to get those answers and maybe go to, you know, you, your customer might be the, the CEO, um, but you're never going to get in front of them and their chief of staff is going to be the one that actually knows the answers. Um, but if you keep on trying to knock on the door of the CEO, you're never going to talk to them. So did you try the, the chief of staff type thing? Yeah. Gotcha. And you mentioned that, that you're writing uh, and blogging about your, your, your journey recently. Um, where can people find you and, and read your work? Um, you can find me most sources uh, just at Theron, T-H-E-R-O-N. Okay. Um, and, and are there any other um, people that are creating content, be it a podcast or a blog that, that you've been enjoying recently or have brought up interesting new insights or points of view around this topic? Uh, you know, there's a lot actually. Um, and I read pretty prolifically as well. Um, what I'm reading right now is venture deals um, with Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson, excuse me, as the authors. Um, I think things like that are, are pretty helpful to give you leverage and give you an edge. Um, as an investor or as an entrepreneur? Uh, really as an entrepreneur. Okay. So thinking about how an investor does their work and make their decisions then helps you craft the business that they want to see when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, I would say so. Um, 
And I think for most people, for example, the, the livelihood of an entrepreneur, they don't understand that they might not actually have the working capital you think they have. Just because they manage a big fund doesn't mean they actually have that money to work with and how important the 20% of their, um, their success means and how important one or two uh, of these businesses hitting an over 10x return or a three or a 6x return is critical to their survival too. So when they, at the end of the day, when they decide on you to invest in you, um, how big of a, a, a bet they're taking on you as a company. Okay, so it sounds like you've got a really interesting product and journey ahead of you. Uh, and you have an audience right now who are interested in the lean startup and in innovating. So if anybody wants to join you, are you hiring at the moment? Do you have any open positions you're trying to fill? I'm not hiring now, right now, but I'm looking for users. So I'm looking for um, adoption into the, uh, the product um, so I can start uh, onboarding people uh, by either the alpha or the beta product to start uh, testing um, and testing against individuals' portfolios and things like that. Okay, so anybody that's working in an investor capacity of any form should check out Fifi, which is F-I-I-F-I.com? F-I-I-F-I.co.co. Fantastic. Well, I think that sounds like a great place to wrap up. Um, thank you very much for your time and for, for sharing all of your experience and insights with us. And that just leads us to say thank you to everybody for listening today. Um, again, I was Chris Guest. I'm at Guesto on most of the socials, G-U-E-S-T-O. Um, if you have any feedback or any recommendations of improvement, then hit us up on Twitter at Guesto or at Lean Startup. Or if you just loved the episode and would like to tell more people about it, um, please do rate and share us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And also uh, you can check us out at leanstartup.co on, uh, on the internet to find companion blog posts and uh, other events and uh, community activities coming soon. So with that, say thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us.